Brown Coffee bring you Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, and Mortimer Snurd, and Charlie's special guest, Orson Welles. Wake up, America, and stump the experts. I'm living out. Well, we'll save that for a couple minutes. All Howdy, right. Dan. <laughs> Hello, ho, ho, Tom. So, yeah, yeah, Santa, Santa, well, Santa. Yes. How welcome, are you doing, Santa? Welcome to our show, Shows, everyone. It's a podcast about it's old-time a, radio. We, and I'm yeah. Dan Howland, and uh, as usual... I'm here with my friend Tom Higgins. Hi again, Tom. Uh, howdy, howdy, people! Yeah. I apologize for the engineers in our booth who missed that cue. Of course, you know the cast <laughs> yeah, away. Feel, I'm not going to feel so bad about muting Zoom and messing up. I mean, he just opened with that, didn't he? he, um, he yeah, that's yeah. Every episode of our show of shows, we pick an old-time radio series or a genre, and we talk about its history, its performers, the importance and legacy, and we try to figure out how it works. And by now, those of you who are hip to it have already figured out what, what the subject is. Why don't you tell us what the subject of today's show is, Tom? The subject for this show is Gene Shepard, and, and specifically Gene Shepard and the mythology of A Christmas Story, the now famous, now infamous, now ensconced in a national treasure status movie, A Christmas Story, and how it became what it is today. And the person who created it and... And along the way, yes, we're going to introduce yes. you to the man who created Ralphie and the Christmas story and why you'll sit around for 24 hours and watch it. And he would be um, basically, if you were alive, he would be doing his podcast, uh, much like the Joe Rogan podcast, and he would be telling you how awful you are for yep. doing that. Yep. That sounds like Shep, all right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, all yeah. right. Well, where do we start with the Christmas story? What's the, well, what like, the genesis we get, of it? Before well, we get to ahead. the Christmas story, let's get back to the roots of the Christmas story because he okay. was this kid, see? Uh, he was born in uh, the basically the south butt end of uh, Chicago, Illinois, um, in the 1920s, late 19, early 1920s, a place called Hammond, Indiana. And mm -hmm. it is just the butt end of, of the big city, it's not quite a farm, but there's some farm lines around them. And it's industrial as hell. There are steel plants and slag plants. And mm -hmm. um, he does the typical, you know, Midwesterner thing. He goes to 
high school. He's around for the war, so he joins the war. He becomes very famously um, a U.S. Army single corps person mm-hmm. who has a lot of war stories, but he was never in Europe. He has a lot of army stories, to be accurate. Yeah, yeah, it's true. He yeah. does have a lot. He has a lot, a lot of, of training camp stories, stories yeah. training stories. Yes, but very early on, from uh, the very early on days, he was interested in radio. Um, he started basically doing uh, sports games in his local community. He got wrapped up in that, and he had a good voice for it. So he started mm-hmm. rising up the ranks of local stuff. Uh, when he did enlist for the army, because he had some radio work, he actually. Uh, was was picked for the single core because that's a lot of engineering and radio stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a ham radio guy. He was very much into the ham world, which for those who don't know is amateur radio. You can broadcast clean across the world if you have the right equipment and right. people talk to each other. So he had a lot of expertise with that, but he comes out of the war. He does some local stuff. He bounces from city to city until about the 1950s, early 1950s, he hits in Cincinnati. And that's where he starts getting his, his I don't want to say hipster vibe, but he mm-hmm. starts really building his, his worldview. His, his, his universe starts getting built. Um, he's reading poetry. He's doing stories. Uh, he gets picked up in the mid-1950s at WOR Radio in New York. And that's probably um, the stint that's the most famous and well-known of his radio career. This is and, so from 1956 to 1977. Yes. He is a long run. It is a right. long He did not expect it to be long. His idea was he was going to come to New York. He was going to do some of this radio stuff. And then he was going to springboard into being an actor mm-hmm. and a producer and a raconteur. He was... Exactly. Uh, this yeah. was it, man. This was the bigs. And the longer his stint on the radio went on, no matter how good he was at it, and he was great, he resented it the longer it went on. You could and hear it in the late broadcast, yeah. I think you can hear it maybe in the middle broadcast. You can hear it starting, like maybe in the 60s. Yeah. You can hear him starting to argue with his the engineers. You can hear him uh, just being bitter. But he turns it around until sometime in the 70s when it was just like bitterness, bitterness, bitterness. Yeah, he, he, yeah. bitterness punctuated by travelogues. He did a lot of traveling and he would come back with these right. stories yeah. of going to Israel or, you know, Egypt and beautiful stuff. Really gorgeous. He did very great descriptive narrative. Oh, yeah. Um, he was fantastic uh, in that maybe the first 10 years of doing WOR, that stuff is all great and I love it. And then there's kind of a decline until he's doing the travelogues and things along those lines, something more stimulating to him. Yep. So by the mid, by the mid 1970s, he realizes he's not going to become a movie star. He's not going to become mm-hmm. this great raconteur of New York. Well, I think screen. he realized it. Um, I think he might have this all started when he didn't get the gig of hosting the Tonight Show after Jack yeah. Carr left. So when Jack Carr left, they want they were looking for people. Mm-hmm. And they went with uh, what's his name? Um, Carson. Was no, it they Carson. Carson. No, it wasn't Jack no. Carr. The original guy picked Jack Carr. Right. Um, and I'm probably goofing this up, but yeah, he was in heavy contention for it, and okay. it went yeah, nowhere. Yeah. It went nowhere. Right. right. Uh, so he pretty much was resigned. But during that time, he tried his best to get into other media. He was publishing in 
Playboy. He was publishing in, uh, he was a car enthusiast. So he would publish regular mm-hmm. pieces in car magazines. He was a hard worker. Oh, yes. Yeah. And he, and, but he never understood why it is the world did not catch his fire and mm-hmm. elevate him to the, to the tops of the tops. I don't think he understood being a cult figure on the radio. I don't no. think he got it. No. Um, but he was, I think, far more influential on the radio than he was in his writing. Although his writing is pretty good. There's nothing his, wrong with his writing. His, I enjoy it. Yeah. But his writing I remember, is good. I remember reading that Jerry Seinfeld said that he learned how to do comedy listening to, to Gene Shepard on WOR when he was a kid. So, you know, the influence, yeah, a lot of people don't realize when they're doing their best work. I think that's Shep. Shep was doing his best work when he was improvising stories on the radio. It's amazingly good. (laughs) So So. later on in his life and and the the 80s and the 70s and 80s and stuff, he tried doing some television stuff. Mm -hmm. He got a couple of gigs with NPR doing radio stuff and they then turned into a PBS special. Um... Uh, Tales from the Open Hearth, I think, was another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he did some stuff on WBAI, which was a local uh, New York station. Mm-hmm. And that was about it for radio. I mean, by the 1990s, he was petering off of radio, and that was pretty much it. Um, oh, I, and I remember, like, when fans would come up to him, there was a lot of stories of fans coming up to him and talking to him about the radio days. Oh, yeah. He was like, why do you even want to talk to me about that? That was just the, my springboard to getting to be a writer and yep. doing stuff for movies. And yeah. So the PBS show he did was Gene Shepard's America. And that was a travel show, which he really did well. For the time, it was a very innovative way of mm-hmm. going about looking at the country. And he would talk about just the people and very much into the slob culture and creeping meatballism and right. really pegged it. And then uh, Shepard's Pie was the other stuff that he did. Um, the books, the books were amazing. Now we're going to hold off on talking about his very first book because it was the book that <laughs> wasn't was, his. Book. Yeah, it was the book that wasn't anyone's book. And anyway, we'll Anything, talk about yeah. it in a minute. Yeah. So by the 1960s, he had started um, writing a bunch for Playboy, mm-hmm. and in 1966, he published his first collected work. It's called "In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash," mm-hmm. and in that book, in that collection of stories is where he codified the beginnings of the Red Rider story. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, the Red Rider story was just a story he told in his live shows. Mm-hmm. Um, the book after that, Wanda Hickey's Night of the Golden Memories um, mm-hmm. and Other Disasters, that was 1971. So that was, the radio show wasn't quite over yet, but it was drawing to a close. Right. Um, again, it was mostly Playboy published stuff and other, other material that he worked up. Um, he came up with a couple other books after that. Nothing really hit as big as In God We Trust or Wanda Hickey. Right. Um, until posthumously in 2003, his best-selling book was the Christmas Story book. They well, yeah, because book. it came out after the movie yeah. and that cashed in on the nostalgia of the movie somehow. And so, yeah, yeah. D- double nostalgia, you know. So for those being patient and waiting for the Christmas Story part to happen, Here's where it's going to happen. So all that. Okay, here we before, go. Here we go. So back in the 1960s, Gene Shepard is doing live shows from the Limelight, which is a club down in New York City. Great place, mm-hmm. beautiful place. Um, and he would do a lot of improv stuff. He would take his bits from the radio, improv them in front of a live audience and really swing with it. 
he was yeah and he was some of it's beautiful and some of it he's just nervous as hell he's some of it here and some of it you can just hear the flop sweat and oh well you know he always had the same responses to hecklers he had a lot of set lines that he did but when he was doing when he was when he was doing well he did great yep and this was one of the stories that he really nailed it he really was the audience was with him and he was enjoying talking and it came out great so this story he took and he molded and he put into a Playboy piece. Mm-hmm. The Playboy piece then got incorporated to In God We Trust. And that is the real nux of um, the Christmas story. It was called mm-hmm. uh, Duel in the Snow or Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid. Mm-hmm. And um, there are some other bits and pieces that fall into the movie that are also part of those books. The Flitz mm-hmm. Tongue thing is a part of another show he did. Um, but what I want to do now is I want to, if I can get the engineers to get and you in there, you wake up now. Pay okay. attention. There we go. Okay. On the, on the beat now, follow what the What are we leader. paying you for? <laughs> so we're going to listen to the 1964 kind of free form live limelight, um, reading or telling mm-hmm. of the section of the Christmas story that becomes Christmas story of right. how he presents the red rider gun to his mom. Right. Okay, here we go. One, two. Now you remember, I'm living out in Indiana, northern Indiana, where we got a lot of territory. You know, there's a lot of vacant lots. There are a lot of forests. There's a swamp there. There's eight million spatsies. These are sparrows, birds. And the kids lived in close proximity with the spatsies and the snakes, the turtles and the birds and the bums. Everything was all going, see, out there. And one of the big things to have in that neighborhood was a BB gun. Well, about, I'd say, roughly September, I began to lay the groundwork. I began to establish that what I wanted was a BB gun. And I began to show my mother these great BB gun ads, you know. Any of you who don't know what a BB gun is, it's an air rifle. And I used to show her these ads that showed Red Rider special carbine model. With a, with a compass in the stock, you know, signed by the Red Rider. <laughs> and they had these beautiful Daisy Model 200s. There was a Benjamin pump gun. Well, I was a Daisy man. <laughs> I, I, oh yeah, the, I, I had an idea, you know, like guys, even at the beginning of their career, they begin to have myths and illusions about what brand is the best. There are nine million guys that think Ford's rattle. That's their myth. There are eight million guys who say uh, Chevys don't hold up. That's their myth. Each guy has a myth. Well, I believe that Benjamin pump guns didn't have power. That was my myth. And I believe that the Red Rider model was for sissies. The only one that was a good one was a Daisy. A Daisy model 200 that had 200 copper BBs in it. That's what the 200 stood for. And it was a carbine model, and I kept saying, that's what I want. And beginning in September, my mother kept saying, you'll shoot somebody's eye out. <laughs> that's a real mother phrase. You'll shoot somebody's eye out. I said, oh, Mom, what do you mean? I know how to handle a BB gun. I shoot Bruners all the time. You'll shoot somebody's eye out. Now, I'm not going to have all the doctor bills and all that. You'll shoot somebody's eye out. Oh, Mom, I'm only going to shoot spatsies. She says, you're going to shoot somebody's eye out, and I'm not going to buy you a baby gun. Well, you know that slow, erosive process 
that kids learn very early in life. That is the wine. You know, you begin to develop that. I can still wine great. You notice that? Hey, we know this. <laughs> we know this. Um, so, yeah, so that's 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 the early day live mm-hmm. version of what he's doing. That's live on the stage. Right, now, and he's at that point, he the the Red Rider gun, he mentions it, but it's kind of, I think the daisies are for sissies. Well, the Benjamins, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You you get you get varying things, and also the mm-hmm. idea that he's talking about branding and stuff, mm-hmm. and he's yeah. he's going into more of the of, of the the nitty gritty, the you know the scratching, spitting part of being a kid. It, right. It's less. I mean, in, in future versions, we will hear, and you will see in the movie. There's a certain noblesse that begets yeah, bestowed upon the child. Yeah, the smoothing take, of nostalgia. The yeah, edges takes, get rubbed takes off. Takes the rough edges off. Yeah, yeah. You'll notice by the time of the Christmas story, the movie, there's no talk of killing birds. Oh, no, no. No, no, no. We, we're just shooting for fun. We're not going to shoot spatsies. Just target you know, shooting, apparently. Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and all through his show, he's talking about how they used to go out in a swamp and shoot critters and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Yeah, so by 1967... He has worked the bit up. He has published it in Playboy. And I think at that point, yeah, it's in God We Trust. All it was others in the book? Okay, it's in yeah. the book. And by the time it gets in the book, this is the form that it solidifies as until it hits the movie and then it gets a further polish. But mm-hmm. the movie will be a homework assignment for you guys to watch if you're not right. already <laughs> watching it for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So here is the 19. This is just um, this is just three years later. Uh, polish and publishing, and this is what that section becomes. One morning, my mother, leaning over a pot of simmering oatmeal, suddenly asked out of the blue, catching me off balance, what would you like for Christmas? Horrified, I heard myself blurt before I could stop, a Red Rider BB gun. Without pausing or even missing a stroke with her tablespoon, she shot back, oh no, you'll shoot out one of your eyes. It was the deadly mother BB gun block. I was sunk. That deadly phrase, you're going to shoot your eye out, used many times over by hundreds of mothers, was not insurmountable or was not surmountable by any means known to kid them. I had really booted it. Such was my mania, my desire for a Red Rider carbine that I immediately began, however, to rebuild the dike. <laughs> I was just kidding. Uh, even though Flick is getting one, that was a lie. I uh, guess, um, I'll tell you what I'd like. I sure would like a Sandy Andy, I guess. <laughs> I watched the back of her Chinese red chenille bathrobe anxiously, looking for any sign that my shaft had struck home. They're dangerous. I don't want anybody shooting their eyes out. The boom had been lowered. I was under it. With leaden heart and frozen feet, I waddled to school, bereft, but undaunted. There you go. That is what we get after a little polish, mm-hmm. a little setting. So those are the two. Those are the two phases of those are the two phases of that Red Rider incident. And uh, what we're going to do, since our new format of show is we're doing the topic this week, and then next week we're going to put up actual examples of the show. Right. So last week we put up Bob and Ray, and then the week after we put up an actual full show of Bob and Ray. 
Mm-hmm. This week, we're going to do something a little different. Um, we're going to put up the Shep thing you're listening to now. So next week, check your log, and you'll get three episodes of Gene Shepard, full episodes of Gene Shepard. Mm-hmm. One is going to be the 1964 full limelight thing, so you can hear him hit and miss and talk about other things and how he works in the Christmas story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next will be the 1967 reading of his freshly published book, In God We Trust. And then after that is going to be the 1972 reading of it. By 1972, it has taken on a further air of reverence, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, when, when you hear him, when he starts the show, he almost is like taking the book out of its velvet case, putting on his white <laughs> gloves, getting a snifter of brandy, and he is going to now read to the children the blessed holiday seasonal event yes. of the Red Rider BB gun. And, and, and then, yeah, and there you go. Which and then is you're not, the, not the feel of the story or the the vibe of the original telling of it or anything. You know, there was a lot of a lot of weird stuff about consumerism and what yeah, kids and- want. And it, it, the, the grit and the dirt has all been brushed away from it. And now it's just this lovely uh, Christmas tradition. Yep. So by 1971, we get Wanda Hickey's book, which has further stories of the Christmas time. Mm-hmm. You get Flick's tongue and you get a couple other stuff with Bruner. Um, 1983, this is the movie. This is when the movie was made and released. Right. And the movie um, was made. He was in it. He helped on the story, mm-hmm. but the story was definitely crafted by uh, the guy, I forget it, Bob Clark, I think it was. Sounds um, right. He worked on it with him and stuff. So it become, I mean, they string it together really nice. And as far as a movie goes, they 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 get it. They get more of, they kind oh, of bring it back. It's a, it's a fine movie. Yeah. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. But there are a lot of movies that become cult movies that become, they're no longer a cult. They're like a mass cult, at which point it's yeah. kind of like everybody loves it and everybody knows it. And then you can get a little tired of it. So yeah, it's like Rudolph the red Nose Reindeer. And that the whole, uh, the, the whole, was it Ralph Backing? Oh, I forget the name of the company that does all of the Christmas animation stuff. Oh, the claymation oh, Rankin stuff. Bass. Rankin, Rankin Bass. Rankin Bass, yeah. Yeah. So then they also did the, uh, side note, they also did the third part of the Lord of the Rings uh, cartoon after it got dropped by the studios, which- No, I they did the first one. No, did they? Oh, no, they did The Hobbit. No, no they, that was after the fact. No, after, when Ra- Ralph Bashke did the Fellowship of the Ring- Oh, and Ralph Bashke, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then okay. they lost funding and then they made but, it and that's where the but, song- But we digress. <laughs> we digress, way digress. Sorry about that, folks. All right. Um, so, so okay. So the movie is made in 1983, and it opens, and it's a great. It's, it gets released in November. Mm-hmm. It does well. It doesn't do great. Uh, Ebert loves it. The critics love it. They think it's a great movie. Some of them even mm-hmm. say it's a instant holiday classic. Mm-hmm. But it's not until the 1990s that it starts taking on the mythicness of um, of the Christmas story. What we see mm-hmm. now. Um, and Shep's still alive at this point, so he doesn't say much about it, but not that I can find. But 1977, TBS or TNT, ever since 1977, on mm-hmm. TBS or TNT, there was a 24 hours of a Christmas story. Wait, it couldn't be 77. You said the movie came out. I'm sorry, 97, 97. 97. Sorry, 97. There we go. Yeah. I apologize. No, it's okay. 
engineers got to my notes, man. What are they doing? <laughs> Come on, guys, follow along. So in 97, it, 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 TBS starts playing it the 24 hours of. So it's like 12 showings consecutive Ugh. of the same movie. No, Chef's still this alive. This was around the time I stopped watching television entirely yeah. before. So I wouldn't know, but the, that just, uh, that's just The grinding. Chef from 1964 would mm-hmm. have been like, he, if it weren't anyone else but him. He would have been, oh, man, look at these slobs sitting around their TVs with their Coca-Cola drinks and their hands (laughs) and their shorts and their bathrobes and they're scratching and they're sniffing, watching the same show for 24 hours. What's wrong with people? He Mm -hmm. would have been all over that. But no, it was him. It was his work. (laughs) And now it is elevated. (laughs) Um, In 2003, the book comes out posthumously. He dies in 1999, I think it was. Um, In 2012... Um, it was selected, the movie was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry of the Library mm-hmm. of Congress for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And I would say it is. It is, yeah. but geez, God, man, come yeah, on. Yeah. With right. the schmaltz and the nostalgia. Yeah. And the, mm-hmm. in November of 2012, here's, here's where things start cresting and falling. There is a Christmas story, the musical. Uh, yeah. Yes. I, 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 I yeah, last year, last year it came through, uh, it came through our town here in Oregon. And I so just now, rolled my eyes. Yeah. Now you can listen to the shows. You can read the book. You can watch the movie or hopefully in a town near you, go see the musical yes. of a Christmas story. Right. And, and you can buy the lamp. And yeah, and then this is mm-hmm. so. This is something Dan and I saw recently posted up on the interwebs. A was it forty foot? It was a forty. It was foot ridiculous. It was some gigantic inflatable version of the in the lamp. middle of a town, put up there by the town. Yeah, in honor of a Christmas story. It, it was the it was the lamp, the leg lamp that Shep was making fun of consumerism about. Mm-hmm. That has now and become making fun of his dad, thinking it was beautiful and classy. It's got to be classy. Look, it has French writing on the front. It says "Fragile." Yeah, it from Italia, Italy, Fragile. <laughs> oh my God! Right. So yeah, so that was it. So you will see bits of this thing happen all around you now. It is truly. Oh, I just saw. I just saw, and I was telling you before we started. I saw a, a right wing cartoon um that had ralphie holding like an ak-47 mm-hmm. and above him it said cancel christmas and then ralphie's saying come and get it yeah, and you see there's such and, yeah, yeah. And, and my thought was you'll shoot your eye out kid <laughs> which is the perfect yeah. reaction for yeah, that is come on but, but it yeah is, like it like is. you were saying i mean uh shep was uh you know Shep was writing it from the perspective of being pro-gun, you know? Yeah, no, there's a, there's a part he writes in the book, in the, the, the full story version, where he's sitting in modern day times as an adult. He's sitting in Horn and Hard, it's in New York, an automat type of place. Mm-hmm. And he's, it's Christmas, it's depressing because it's New York and everything in New York is depressing for Shep because he's not a star. Man, he's in with the slobs <laughs> eating, you know, tomato yeah, soup. Yeah, he's in, in he's, at, he's at the automat, yeah. And next to him, with two tables away, is a woman dressed as a feminist. He makes a 
big point to say this. And she has pamphlets against guns for Christmas, how to do away with guns for Christmas. And he's having a verbal spar with her and mocking her choice of soup as being too liberal or something. So I don't think that cartoon would be very far off the mark for no, Mr. Not, not too far off, no, but it was strange. Now, you guys are, most of you guys are here for a Christmas story, but we are going to, as they say in the business, blow your mind. Because in the <laughs> 50s, Gene Shepard, before he calcified, and I'm not going to get, I mean, you know, he's a great guy and I love him dearly, but, you know, he became he's a, he's, he's a great performer and a flawed human being. That's the way yes, I like it. Yes, yes. I mean, I admire We're not even going to go and we're not going to no, touch the family story that? stuff. Yeah. We're okay. just going to say he married one of his producer engineers, Leigh Brown. When, mm -hmm. you know, so he did like some engineers. Um, <laughs> but in the 50s, he was on the radio and he was filling time. And one night, he was spinning on about what makes what makes a thing a bestseller. What what are these bestseller lists? This is total BS. Right. Now, what I want you to what do. He had what he heard I, was what he had heard was yeah. bestseller lists were based on people requesting the books at booksellers. Yes, and that was the catalyst for one of the great pranks of all time. I really love this this thing so go ahead i'm sorry so he goes on the radio and he he mm -hmm. starts he he workshops this with his fans this is when he was still taking phone calls later years he doesn't talk to the fans that's not what you he do. talks at people rather than he talks yeah, he, yeah. He, you're listening to him he's not listening mm -hmm. to you but yeah. back here he's so they cut they and there's no recordings of this that i can find because this is before his stuff got recorded from mm -hmm. the radios but he and his fans work up a way to create a book that they're going to all request. Right. They're going to go to all their New York, they're going to go to the booksellers and they're going to say, I would like, uh, I, came Libertine. Up with yes. I Libertine by a fictional author named Frederick R. Ewing. Mm -hmm. They came up with a biography for Ewing on that mm -hmm. show. They came up that he's from here. They he's came up with the plot points. They came yep. up with what the book was about. Uh, they may have even come up with ideas for what the cover was, you know, so that they could describe it to the to the book dealers. Yep. And then he did the flash mob thing, which he did a couple of times in the 50s, where he just said, and now my minions fly, you know, and go out and go to bookstores and request a copy of I Libertine. And let's see if we can get this on the bestseller list. And they do. And they did. And it got onto, the, it got onto the, um, some people say that it was listed on the New York Times bestseller list. I haven't checked that, but there it is. I, I think it's pretty, I think it, I think it's not. Anyway, confirmed. anyway, regardless, the book dealers were going crazy. Looking for I Libertine, which I Libertine, exist. which didn't exist, but it went, <laughs> it went so crazy for it that uh, Shep, and uh oh who was it theodore, theodore sturgeon. sturgeon the science yep. fiction writer who was theodore sturgeon i think was known for being able to write fast and good and fun. yeah he could write something fast and good and funny and he and shep knocked this thing out well who knows Stur how long it took like a sturgeon, week or less sturgeon knocked weekend. it out shep shep gave notes and, yeah. and kind of got them along mm -hmm. there and they i'm sure they worked it out there but but Sturgeon also has another one of these under his belt too. He also did the Kilgore Trout novel, Venus on a Half Shell. 
Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So there's this fictitious character in, um, in um, Kurt Vonnegut's stories called um, um, Kilgore Trout. Right. And the Theodore Sturgeon was called in to make the actual Penis on a Half Shell book right. under the pseudonym Kilgore Trout. So, he, so Sturgeon has a history of doing this stuff. Oh, yeah. That, that's, he had the reputation and, and they knew that he could do it. And he knocked out this book. And it got published by Ballantine Books. And yes, it did. And it with the, exists now. It is a real thing that, that was willed into the world, despite the fact that it didn't deserve to exist at all. <laughs> this, was, this, was the, this was the power of Shep. Yeah. He could get on and he can improv and he can get a group of people excited about something mm-hmm. to the point where they're, you know, they're going out to bookstores. And, and this isn't back didn't, in the... Didn't this is he... back in the days where it actually you needed to go do it. You couldn't just go on the internet and go to Amazon and request it. What was it that he got his listeners to go and throw open their windows and yell out their windows? You filthy I, pragmatist. I've never gotten a full confirmation on that. That was yeah. in the fifties as well. And yeah, but mm-hmm. he was, yeah, there was some phrase that they were doing, which later got picked up by network. I think is I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Right. That yes. kind of a, uh, you know, being just, led by the media person to mm-hmm, to, go to, to just go to the window, throw it open and yell something. So one last thing about I Libertine. Mm-hmm. I Libertine existed for years as a physical book. And then when the internet started coming aboard, um, people were looking for, people like us would look for copies of I Libertine. The price shot up. Mm-hmm. Somebody scanned it and uh, put it up online. So you can find it online. Not only can you find it online, you can also find an audiobook version online <laughs> by Libertine. So there is an audiobook version of I Libertine for free no idea. on the interwebs. We'll try to get the link is for that, you if it still is exists. That on LibriVox or something? Or no, I don't think it's on LibriVox because it's I don't know if it's okay. I don't know if it's public domain yet. Anyway, but it's it's free. So yep. Okay. So one of the other things I wanted to go on about just for a little bit. Um, is because uh, we've gone Gene on Shepherd, for quite a while. We should, yeah, we have gone on quite a while, but we'll, we'll do this one real quick. Gene Shepard okay. actually was at the great Martin Luther King March, the I Have a Dream mm-hmm. speech march, March mm-hmm. on Washington, August 1963. He was there and mm-hmm. he was reporting on it in only the way Gene Shepard could report upon it. Mm-hmm. He was reverent of the fact he was a civil rights guy, he believed in civil rights, and mm-hmm. but he was a man of his time, so he's reporting on it as a kid growing up in the 20s and 30s and he's in the middle of this thing and he's talking about it and he's it's a show we're linked to and you guys should listen to it is another aspect of Gene Shepard that Mm -hmm. does Um, the last thing we want to hit upon real quick is the question always comes up how much of Gene Shepard was scripted how much of it was off the cuff how much of it was improv you can kind of hear the difference, even in those two clips that you played. Obviously, the latter one is is he's just reading. Yep. And he did a fair amount of that on the air. But you can also hear him when he's ad-libbing and, and workshopping material to see if it'll work either as a stage performance or, you know, writing it down as a short story. He would, he improvised a fictional autobiography on the air. Yeah. <laughs> And that, that's a, that is a remarkable thing to do. I don't know of anybody else in the history of radio who did anything remotely like that. So there is there is one one quote I want to read that he gave mm-hmm. during an interview, um, and he says, and this really sets out the whole tenor of what he was doing. 
He says, protective, coloriz protective colorization is extremely important in our lives. We in the weeds all the time, we're in the weeds all the time because we find it better down here in the weeds. Look at me, I'm not at all what I appear to be. This is merely a mask uh, that more or less covers up the real me that's underneath. The real me is a saber-toothed tiger. I couldn't dare go down the street the way I really am. I'd get shot in five minutes. They had me in the wagon with a bunch of Doberman pinchers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, so he was well aware that he, he was knew putting that on. There was, a, there was a, yeah, well, I think the best performers take a version of themselves and turn it up to like, you know, turn it up to 11 yep. and, and then perform as that character. Imagine my shock and dismay when I realized that Emo Phillips isn't like Emo Phillips all the time. Right. <laughs> or Jerry Lewis was not Jerry Lewis all the time. There was yeah, another exactly. Side. Yeah. Right. Wasn't running around going, live my orange juice, lady. I met Jerry Lewis. He wasn't like that at all. He came into the <laughs> hardware store where I worked and everyone else was fawning over him. And because I didn't, I had a little nice moment with Jerry Lewis. So yeah, you know. Oh, jeez. I, I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm not kidding. It was funny. It was very peculiar. That is a beautiful story. Uh, it's not much of a story, anyway. anyway so, Gene Shepard. There we go. The man behind the mask. The mask mm -hmm. behind the man. Infinite loop. Rinse repeat. We're going to put a ton of shows up and links. We're going to put the three Christmas story readings and uh, performances up next so week. Our listeners have and homework. Week. And the homework, homework is over the holiday it. season. Yeah. Watch the Christmas story as a movie. Don't watch mm -hmm. it because you watched it for 50 years and grandma would die if you didn't watch it with her or something, you know. Mm -hmm. Sit down and watch it as what it is. Well, and then you can compare it to these other earlier versions and see how yeah. it evolved and how it became what it was. And you get a mm -hmm. really good sense of how a story is crafted and told and molded. And... Right. And oh, there great. you go. Okay, there we go. And we're um, not going to mention the end of Gene Shepard because he just, let's just say he lived in Florida until he was not living anymore. Yeah, that's, a good, that's it. That's it. And that's all um, I want to say on that. Yeah, we've got, uh, well, let's run through our usual end of podcast <laughs> stuff here. Uh, we've got our the, the uh, daily podcast that Tom has got going. They're all on uh, our show of shows.com. Our show of shows.com. In fact, there's a new um, player set up on the sidebar where you just click a button and you can listen to all the shows coming down. Right. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about a new podcast that we've started that's not this day in history, but it's kind of fun and interesting. So we'll talk about that. We're going to record that today, but we're not going to release it for a couple of weeks. There you go. Um, and if you like what you hear on the podcast, we have a Patreon and we're going to be donating 20% of the proceeds to archive.org. Which it's is just, the housing just, of all good things in the universe. Yes, exactly. And so you'd be supporting us and, and supporting a great resource that preserves American pop culture. Um, and if you wanted to just donate directly to archive.org, that would be fantastic because yep. we love the archives so much. They are the reason we are here. All these radio shows, mm -hmm. all of the stuff is all there. So give them your love. All right. Well, I think that winds things up. Uh, thanks very much for listening. We rattled on a bit this time, but thanks for sticking with us. We'll be back before you know it with our next episode. And we're going to be discussing baseball. 
old time radio baseball shows until yeah. that day that glorious day i'm dan howland and, and i'm tom higgins and we'll see you soon bye i sipped the bitter dregs of coffee as i sat in the horn and hard art remembering that long forgotten day in the past that red rider bb gun at the time that i had actually almost shot my eye out Red Rider had struck again. And I wondered as I looked out into the Manhattan street whether Red Rider was still dispensing retribution and frontier justice as of old. Considering the number of kids I see around with broken glasses, I suspect he is. And don't forget, kids, Merry Christmas. But be careful. You're liable to shoot your eye out. You're liable to shoot your eye out. Thank you.